All right, well, Daniel chapter 4 this evening. Daniel chapter number 4. Thank you for being here. And uh, again, we appreciate everyone that's come out. And if you were one of the ones that have been here every service, you're to be commended for that. And we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Uh, it's, it's hard, especially if you're coming straight from work to church. And you got a lot of going on, a lot of irons in the fire. And we thank you so much for being here. And the Bible says where two or three are gathered in the midst, I'm, I'm in the middle of it. In my name, I'm in the middle. And we meet that requirement tonight. And we're going to have a good time. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I did that for nine years. Sometimes some of our best activities and moments were with smaller intimate groups. And so we don't always base everything on numbers, amen? But we're glad that you're here. This is a good crowd. Uh, ladies, thank you for singing for us again tonight. We appreciate you doing that. And uh, I like the book of Daniel because, well, I'm kind of partial to it because it's my last name, all right? Uh, but there's some wonderful, wonderful truth. You know, I, I believe we do a great disservice to the Word of God when we relegate certain books to only certain contexts. For instance, we think about the great stories of Scripture like Daniel and the lion's den we find in Daniel 6 or David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 or we read about the flood or creation and we say, Man, these are wonderful children's Sunday school stories. And they are, but you know what? They're wonderful truths for all of us. They're timeless truths that we never outgrow. They're truths that we always need, and Daniel is, is, is chocked full of them. And uh, I love this passage of Scripture because it's different. It's a bit odd. But what God has to say to us here in Daniel 4, I think will be a real help to us and maybe even the key to opening up the floodgates of revival in my heart and in yours. Anybody in here an avid reader? You like to read? All right, you know, I'm not. Now, my wife is. As a matter of fact, she um, keeps track of every book that she's ever read. She started in the early 2000s, and she has a notebook that she writes it down, and uh, if she goes back and does a repeat reading, she writes it down again, and she loves to read. Now, I'm fast reader, but she's a slow reader. That drives her nuts because she loves to read, and I don't, all right? I remember one time I bought a book, it was an autobiography of a gospel singer that I love a whole lot, and I flew through it and got done in like two and a half hours, and she was just about ticked off. She couldn't believe it. How in the world do you read that fast? But I don't know, it just is what it is. But I do know this, if you're a reader, the cardinal sin of reading is to read the back of the book first. You don't want to see what happens at the end before the beginning, spoiler alert, Right? Well, here in Daniel 4, we're going to kind of do that here for a moment. As Although Daniel is the human penman, here Nebuchadnezzar kind of takes over for a moment in the narrative, this king of Babylon, this head honcho of the main world Gentile power at the time. In other words, the buck stops with him. He's the most powerful political figure in the known world right now. And if you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem had ransacked it and destroyed it, but yet he had taken the cream of the crop with him to Babylon. He'd taken the best of the best, the royal line, to train them in the Chaldean language and the Chaldean culture and sciences and maths so that they would be fit to serve him in his court. In the midst of that kidnapping, if you will, he took Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know him better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Babylonian, they're Chaldean names. And here Nebuchadnezzar takes over the narrative, and he tells us what happened in his life. 
And oh, we want to be careful not to miss this because it's a wonderful truth for you and me. Look at verse number one, if you will, with me. As we get a little bit of the end before the beginning, as we read about a man who just doesn't seem like himself. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Now, since when is this bloody, ruthless king concerned about peace with anybody? Here's a man that basically takes what he wants and kills whoever gets in his way. He's a heathen, pagan king. And now he's issuing a salutation of peace? Who is this guy? I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. Wait a minute. He's polytheistic. He's, he worships false gods. And now all of a sudden, he's talking about the high God, Jehovah God of heaven. Who is this guy? And what did he do with King Neb? How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. What has gotten in to this proud, arrogant, heathen king? Pastor Earl, when I was in Bible college, I had a a professor named Ernest Childs taught a lot of the systematic theology courses. We, as freshmen and sophomores, had him for a lot of our classes. We loved him dearly. Brother Childs was 147 when I had him as a teacher. So I'm not really sure how old he is now, but he's still with us. He used to say this. He'd say, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised by who's there and also by who's not there. Now, friends, I don't want to preach something dogmatically that God doesn't come out and say, but I do believe the Lord gave us a brain and he allowed us to put the principles of Scripture together and draw conclusions either even when God doesn't spell every word out for us. I believe it's okay for a pastor to express opinion as long as he backs it up with biblical principle and doesn't pass it off as dogma. Amen? I believe that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Brother Earl does. Man, I'm glad he agrees. I was getting a little panicky on that one, all right? Here's a man whose life changed. And friend, the only way your life can change is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, if any man's a Christian, he's a new creature, literally a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Psalm 40, that he lifted me up out of a horrible pit out of a miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings, and he's put a new song in my heart. When you get saved, things change. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a reformation. He didn't have a change in willpower. He had a change in life. But before that could happen with old King Neb, a real, legitimate, deep humbling had to take place. This evening, as we look towards God doing a reviving work in our hearts and building on it, there may be some humbling that needs to take place in our lives. I want to talk to you tonight for a few moments along these lines, the destructive power of pride. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this 
these folks that have come out tonight, they're already right with me. They're already locked in and paying attention. Lord, we ask you to reward them for that by speaking to their hearts and doing a work inside of them. Maybe there's someone who has come to the service but never come to the Savior. Someone here who doesn't know that his sins are forgiven, that he's on his way to heaven. Lord, would you help him to understand tonight that he's a sinner and that there's absolutely no way to be saved outside of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We must trust his shed blood. Lord, help them to be able to humble themselves before you and to realize it's not about them but about Jesus and be saved tonight. Father, maybe there's some of us as believers tonight that are walking in pride and whatever way that manifests its ugly head. Maybe we're choosing our way over your way. Maybe we're rebelling against you. Would you please speak to the hearts of believers tonight that they would confess that pride and forsake it, that they could be used to do mighty things for you. Lord, as always, we do claim Isaiah 55, 11 that says your word will not return into you void, but will prosper in the purpose for which you send it. Father, we trust that tonight. We ask that your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Several things I want you to see tonight about the destructive power of pride. Verse number four, Nebuchadnezzar had a bad dream. You ever had a bad dream before? <laughs> Have you ever had a dream that was so bad, had it been real, you went to, you went to jail if it was real life? Oh, man, if you ever woke up from a dream before and be like, oh, Thank you, Lord, that wasn't real. By the way, let me say this to you. Don't put stocks in your dreams. Don't base your life and your decisions on what happens in your dream world. Friend, that's a messed up place to be. I don't want to stay there, do you? Now, I've had some pretty good ones, too, like when you dream you fly and things of that nature. That's pretty awesome, but we can't rely on them. Here in the Old Testament, God would speak to man through dreams and visions. He would appear visibly and sometimes he would speak audibly. And he did that because the Bible was not yet completed. All the 66 books of the canon of Scripture were not completed and so God would appear in signs to validate and vindicate who he was and would speak to man. Now listen, I don't want to put God in a box. God can do whatever he wants to do. But I know this, he doesn't speak independent of his word. Amen? God has chosen to speak to you and I through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit speaks in cooperation with His Word. He speaks to us in the still small voices of our heart, not an audible thing, but in our heart. And so we don't base what we believe on visions and dreams. Let me run about a 15-second rabbit trail. Don't base your theology on somebody else's book about a dream. Somebody says, I died and went to heaven. I died and went to hell. And God said to come back and write this book. Friends, Revelation says no man should add to or take away from the words of this prophecy. In other words, if we don't believe what God has recorded in Scripture, we're not going to believe anybody else either. We don't put stock in what somebody else says. Revelation, as far as the Word of God is considered, is done. And so everything we need to know about heaven, everything we need to know about hell, everything we need to know about theology, period, is found in the Word of God. Amen? That's what we trust. But in this day and age, God would, would speak to men in these ways, and he's about to do this with Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions in my head troubled me. 
Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, every fake and phony in the land. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and that no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretations thereof. Verse 10, thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my bed upon my bed, excuse me, I saw in the visions, said five times fast. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times or seven years pass over him. Now, friend, we're not going to read all the chapter, because really tonight the dream is not the most important thing for what we want to accomplish this evening. Nebuchadnezzar brings in Daniel before him. Now friends, Daniel's got enough sense and humility about him to understand no interpretation that he can give to any king comes from him. Daniel's not so arrogant and proud to believe that he's the end all. He understands that if God gives, if he is an interpretation to a king, it's because God gave it to him. See, Daniel had figured out what Nebuchadnezzar's about to learn the hard way that humility will get you far. Daniel had been exalted to an amazing, marvelous place in a foreign land, and a lot of that was because of his humility before the Lord. Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar in verse number 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. That's not a good place to start, is it? Oh, were this dream, this interpretation were it to happen to your enemies, king, and not you. And by the way, I don't believe that Daniel's flattering the king here. I don't believe that Daniel is blowing smoke. I believe that Daniel is concerned about his king. I believe Daniel is concerned about the judgment that is coming. So he goes on to explain to Nebuchadnezzar the dream and explain to him that the big, huge, flourishing tree was a picture of the king and his kingdom and how the Babylonian empire had grown large and great and was nourishing everyone underneath of it and there was no one or nothing that could touch it. But then he talks about an angel and a holy one saying to hew down the tree. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, king, 
you're going to lose it all. God's going to take it all from you because of your pride. And you're going to, for seven years, walk around insane, eating grass from the field like an animal. Not only are you going to lose your kingdom, you're going to lose your mind, king. And it's coming. Now that sets the stage for, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Look at verse 27. Daniel finishes interpretation explaining that this is coming to the king. He says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. King, why don't you get right with God? King, why don't you humble yourself before the Lord right now? And who knows, if you change and repent, maybe God will lengthen your time of peace. Think that would have gotten your attention? Friends, how many times do we hear the Word of God and the man of God and it bounces off of us like spiritual Kevlar? How many times do we hear the Word of God and the man of God and like our children and our grandchildren that we fuss at them for, it goes in one ear and what? Out the other. Look with me, if you will, at the very next verse. Verse 28, all this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, that ought not to surprise us when God says something's going to happen, it does. At the end of 12 months, so a year has passed, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, now be ready for this because the pride is dripping off of this like honey on the end of a comb, all right? Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty, it's almost like he says it in surround sound, right? The microphone comes on the stair, and he's just having a pride party. He is so pleased with himself. Friends, we're talking about the destructive power of pride. Number one, I want you to see this very quickly. If you write things down, here it is. Number one, pride robs God of his glory. Look what he says here. He says, the king spake, number one, it robs God of his might. He says, the king spake and says, not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power. The king is looking over his kingdom and reflecting on it, and rather than giving God the honor and glory for what God and his mercy has allowed him to amass, the king says, I've built this with my hands, my strength, my might. Everything here is resultant of me. And by the way, this has been the M.O. for Nebuchadnezzar his whole reign. This is the same man that built a statue so high of himself demanding to be worshipped as God. And if people didn't fall down and do it when the music started, they were to be thrown into a fiery furnace because his ego couldn't handle rejection. This is a proud man. And he says, I have built all this. Do we have any builders in here tonight? Brother, I couldn't build a house out of Lincoln Logs. I was not the kid that built dams in the creek and grabbed the Legos and all. I, I played with action figures, not dolls. You call them dolls. I got a bone to pick with you. All right? I played with action figures, all right? But I have never been good. That's not the way I'm gifted. It's not the way God's. I'm not a good builder. 
But I want to tell you something. The Bible says in John 15, 5, without me, ye can do nothing. I want you to participate with me in the stupidest illustration that you've ever seen in your life, all right? Take your right hand, please. Will you hold up your pinky finger like you're wealthy? Everybody do this with your pinky finger. You guys have any idea how ridiculous you look right now? All right, you can stop. So your brain sent a signal to your pinky finger, which in turn sends a signal back to your brain, and you can move that finger. I don't have to do this. I can do it just by sending it. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. You think about the human mind. Now, that's extremely insignificant in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? But do you know I can't even move my pinky finger without God? We have no strength without him. Pastor Earl, I'm having some people say some very kind things to me as my meetings increase when they find out about my dialysis and my need for a kidney transplant. And they're very kind, and they say, oh, we just don't know how you do it. And you know, here's how I have to respond to that. Thank you. But it's of God's grace. I could be debilitated. I could be down on my back. I could not be able to do anything when I get done. God's the one that gives the strength. And Nebuchadnezzar had the audacity to rob God of praise for his might. Matthew 20, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. The Bible says, as the arm of the Lord shortened that he cannot save, God has the strength. God has the power to do everything in your life that needs to be done for him. But independent of him, we are completely alone and we have no strength, nothing. Pride robs God of his might. But number two, pride robs God of his majesty. Look what it says in verse uh, 30. I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. See, King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was number one. I'm the king. Everyone answers to me. I'm the the biggest military might on this earth. I've got one of the ancient wonders, one of the world's seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I'm an unbelievable king. I destroy, I conquer. When people say, well, you want, they give it to me. People bark and beckon at me. I am sovereign. God is sovereign. And although his physical throne has yet to come to fruition, Make no mistake about it, friends. He still sits on it now. And I'm glad that God's in control because were it me, we'd have messed it up, wouldn't we? And Nebuchadnezzar says, my majesty. Friends, I want to tell you, God doesn't share his glory and majesty with anyone. I want to remind you that you and I are not made to handle that majesty. We've not been created to receive it. We've been created to reflect it. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. His majesty, His splendor. And friend, when we set ourselves up on the throne of our lives and hearts and we don't let God have His way, we are robbing Him of majesty. Can I take an abbreviation for just a moment here? Talking about the destructive power of pride. What is pride? Some people say, well, pride is when you look in a vanity mirror and say, man, I am God's gift to humanity, buddy. It doesn't get any better than what I'm looking at right now. And I know we all feel that way, right? Or how about that person who thinks they know it all? Ever met somebody like that? You can't teach them anything? It's the kind of person that you want to smack right upside the head. Like if you say, hey, my favorite bat, uh, baseball player, he batted 341 last year. They go, actually, 342. <laughs> and you just want to go, I got you 342 right here. Mm, right? You met people like that? By the way, have you ever noticed that all the intellectuals in the world that go to Jeopardy, they can tell you everything about underwater basket weaving and rocket science, but they can't tell you who put the animals on the ark? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? See, friends, these are just symptoms of pride. Here's the definition of pride. Pride is my way over God's way. And whereas you and I understand that Adam introduced sin to the human race, and he did. Romans 5, wherefore is by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so the death's passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Adam introduced it, and by the way, don't be too hard on him. Had you been Adam and I been Adam, we'd have done the same thing. We made the same choice. But Lucifer introduced sin to the universe. Lucifer was a fallen angel. And he said in his heart in Isaiah 14, I'll be like the most high God. God said, no, you won't. Therefore, pride, my way over God's way, is the root of all sin. Sexual sin, financial sin, sins of the spirit, sins of the flesh, they can all be traced back to me over him. That's why in Proverbs, when God says, yea, these six things, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. The first one on the list, a proud look. Proverbs says, pride goeth before destruction. And a haughty spirit, huh, before a fall. Number one, pride robs God of his glory. But number two, pride rejects God's word. Verse 27, again, we see, going back for a moment, Daniel said, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar rejected God's mandate. Now, friend, let me say this today. You and I will never be what God wants us to be if we do not obey his word. We can put all the bumper stickers on the back of our cars, we can have all the cute little lanyards that have little Jesus sayings. We can go to church and sit in the pew until we get calluses on our backside. And bottom line is this, if we don't obey the word of God, we'll never be used of him. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said in 1 Samuel that uh, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. He says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Nobody in here would claim to practice witchcraft. No one in here would claim to be a disciple of Satan. But God says when you rebel against him, it's just as satanic as those practices. We must obey him. 
We must obey. We must the song we sing, and again, we relegate it to children, but we shouldn't. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Do it exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Hey, we've got to put our money where our mouths are. We've got to have lives that back up our lips and obey the word of God. And when we say no when Jesus says yes, or we say yes when Jesus says no, we are revealing the pride of our heart. And Nebuchadnezzar, although Daniel warned him, and Daniel warned him in love, and Daniel warned him, he spoke the truth and loved in Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that wholeheartedly. Nebuchadnezzar said, nope, not for me. I'll take the interpretation, but I won't take the warning. Hey, he rejected God's mandate, but number two, he rejected God's man. As I mentioned a moment ago, Daniel came to him and, and warned him of what the interpretation was and what was coming. He could have repented. We don't know what would have happened had he done so, but we'll never know right then and there because he rejected God's man. Friend, you have a pastor that faithfully teaches and preaches the word of God Sunday in and Sunday out, Wednesday in and Wednesday out. You have Sunday school teachers that faithfully teach the word of God every Sunday. You've got people in your life that communicate and speak truth to you from the word of God. And when we, in our hearts and our pride, we reject God's man, it's not a good thing. Listen, your pastor will not give an account to God for how much of the word of God you obeyed, but he will give an account to God for how much of the word of God he faithfully communicates. But you will give an account to God for what you do with what you hear. Don't reject God's man. See, when you're doing that, you're really just rejecting God himself. Nebuchadnezzar rejected God's mandate. He rejected God's man. But here's number three, and perhaps uh, the most egregious in a way, he rejected God's mercy. Let me tell you what I, how I get that. Look at verse number 29. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the king of Babylon. He goes on his pride spiel. A voice from heaven says, all right, king, while the word was still in his mouth, an angel said, guess what? It's judgment time. Your throne is removed from you now. Friends, he had 12 months to get right with God. So, Brother Barry, how do we know that God would have changed his mind? We don't know. But Nebuchadnezzar could have repented. Friend, you and I don't know how much time we have. Ephesians 5 says, redeeming the time the days are evil. Psalmist says, teach us to number our days. James says, life's like a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it's gone. We don't know how much time we have to get serious about this thing called the Christian life. And the longer we say no to the Lord, the longer uh, the possibility of revival and having God's power in our lives and ministries and churches is delayed and we can't afford to waste Nebuchadnezzar rejected the mercy of God. Preached on God's mercy the other night. The very next day on my Bible app, the verse of the day was, it is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. Listen, they are new every morning. Now, the word new there means fresh. Great is thy faithfulness. Friend, if you'll come to God and repent, he'll show mercy on you. 
I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know this. There is no revival without repentance. And you're a human being, which means you're a sinner. And even if you're forgiven by God's grace and saved, we sin every day. And sometimes we let that account of sin build up rather than repenting of it. And pride, don't let that continue. Hey, pride robs God of his glory. Number two, pride rejects the word of God. And then number three, I want you to see this. Pride is resisted by God personally. Look at verse 32, 31 rather. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Neb. And he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Peter says, God giveth grace to the humble, but he resisteth the proud. The word resist means to oppose. Friend, you can't beat the opposition when it's God. When God's against you, it don't matter who's for you. Now, friend, I'm glad for one thing. I'm glad the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Aren't you glad for that in Romans 8? But God is actively resisting Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, he took his sovereignty. That throne that meant so much to him. That crown that meant so much to him. That praise, that honor, that splendor. He took it all from him. Like that. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And like the river, he turns it to the server he will. Friend, don't put your trust in the president. Don't put your trust in a monarchy. Don't put your trust in a government system. We trust the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar lost his sovereignty, but number two, he lost his sanity. And I remember when I was a kid, Brother Earl, I used to think this verse meant that he literally turned into a wild bird. He turned into some kind of a strange monster-looking creature. But he allowed himself to get unkept. Body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were, his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, matted hair. His nails were like bird's claws. He's a mess. Can you imagine going to the Babylonian zoo one day and the newest attraction is the king? Hey, come buy some popcorn and feed old Neb. He eats grass. He's our newest attraction. For seven years, he's down on all fours eating grass like an animal. There's actually a disorder called lycanthropy where people think they're wild animals and they eat grass. Friend, do you know our minds our bodies, our faculties, our organs, they're all in the hand of God. And they can shut off and shut down in a nanosecond of time. Destructive power of pride. Pride robs God of his glory. Pride rejects God's word. Pride is resisted by God personally. But here's the good news. Last of all, 
Pride can be remedied through self-humbling before God. Look at verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven. God got him down where he had nowhere to look but up. And mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, nor say unto him, What doest thou? Number one, Nebuchadnezzar had a humbling realization. He realized who God is and who he is. Now listen to me. Humility is not looking in a mirror and saying, I'm stupid, I'm fat, I'm worthless. If you do that, you are slapping God in the face. If you look at the creation that he has made, and it's something that you cannot change through a discipline act of your own, you can't get taller, you can't change this or that, and you call yourself worthless and all that, that's not humility, that is a slap in God's face. You are a special creative act of God, and we should not talk about that way. That's not humility. Some people use that as a backdoor way of pride to get compliments. Oh, I'm no good. I, I'm not very talented, or I, no one loves me. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we, you're great. You're wonderful. Right? Humility is the realization of who God is and who you are in his sight. Nebuchadnezzar is now a humble man. I recognize God Jehovah as the king. He's who I praise. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Outside of him, independent of him, we are nothing. Friends, that's humility. That's humility. Number one, we see his realization. But number two, we see his repentance. Here's a man who has changed. (laughs) Here's a man who's now praising and honoring God, not just as one of the gods, not just as a choice on the menu, but as the high God of heaven. No longer about Nebuchadnezzar and his exploits and his accomplishments, but he begins to preach a message on praise to God here. His realization, his repentance, and then last of all, we see his restoration. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Not me, not my kingdom. Not my throne, not my reign, but his. All whose works are truth and his ways judgment. Look at the last phrase. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Only time the word pride is used in the King James and the English translation here in this chapter. Although pride's all over the story. Nebuchadnezzar says those that walk in pride, God is able to bring down. Friend, don't walk in pride. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord so that he doesn't have to. Better to self-humble than be Savior-humble. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? It takes humility to 
to realize that your good works won't get you to heaven. Your code of morality is not good enough. You must put your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you. We need to have the righteousness of God to be saved. And friend, you and I don't have it on our own. And as a believer, is there an issue in your life where you've been rebelling and God's calling you to himself tonight in humility so that revival can come? The Bible says a broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. When we're broken and contrite over those sins that God's revealed to us, then repentance can come, and then revival can come. The destructive power of pride. Don't let these results happen to you. Humble yourself before the Lord. Let's pray. Appreciate your attention tonight. You've listened so well. And we appreciate that. Valuing what God has to say over everybody else is a form of humility too. We thank you for it. As we bow our heads and close our eyes tonight, I want to ask you a question as a penis begins to play. Have you humbled yourself in the matter of the salvation of your soul? Has there been a time in your life where in humility you realized you were a sinner and that there was nothing you could do to save your own soul. But you believed that Jesus died and was buried and rose again for your sin. And you put your faith and trust personally in what Christ did for you. If that's happened to you, and you're a believer, you have Bible assurance that you're saved and on your way to heaven, would you raise your hand as a testimony tonight? Amen. Will there be somebody here tonight that didn't raise their hand because they're just not sure? Will there be someone here tonight that said, Brother Barry, I, I'd like prayer because I don't know that that's happened to me. And I believe all the facts of the, of the gospel. I wouldn't dispute any of it, but I don't know if it's ever changed my heart and life. I don't recall if I've ever had a time where I repented and received Jesus as my Savior. But Brother Barry, I'm concerned about it. have been all week, actually. Or maybe this is your first time here and you're concerned about it. You'd say, Brother Barry, would you pray for me that I would settle the matter of the assurance of my salvation? If that's you, would you raise your hand? Anyone like that here tonight at all? Anybody at all? Talking to God's people tonight mainly, if not even exclusively. Here's my question. Did God put his finger on an area of pride in your life tonight that's hindering your walk with the Lord? and hindering you from receiving what God wants to give you? Would there be a believer here tonight say, Brother Barry, God specifically spoke to my heart about a sin issue, and it all boils down to pride that I need to deal with tonight. God spoke to me. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Anyone like that at all? Yes, ma'am, thank you for your honesty. Anybody else? God spoke to my heart about a sin issue tonight, and I need to do business with the Lord and not put that off. Anybody at all? How many would say this, Brother Barry, although I'm not perfect, sin every day, as far as I know, I'm right with the Lord right now. And I want to ask Him, through His strength, to keep me humble before Him. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Amen. Friend, I want to tell you, I want to be transparent with you, this is a sin that I battle with daily.
a lot. Pride rears its head in so many ways in our lives. Father, would you help us to be humble before you? Would you help us never to fail to give you the honor and glory, the majesty, the might's yours? Would you help us to heed the word of God that you would not be resisting us? <laughs> and may we practice self-humbling before you. Pray now that you be with Pastor Earl as he comes and directs the remainder of this invitation.